You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Jagard and Blunt would certainly have known each other. The print trade was a close-knit community at the time, and they also specifically had particular interests in common. So in addition to serving as printer to the City of London, Jagard also held the monopoly for publishing theatrical playbills. So those flyers that were handed out or posted around town to tell people what plays were being staged in the theatres in London. Blunt, as we've already noted, published work by a number of the playwrights who wrote the plays that uh, Jagard's playbills were advertising. So if, in the course of the evening, Jagard and Blunt had spoken to each other, which seems not unlikely at such a small gathering, what might they have talked about? While their general interests overlapped, there was one quite specific point of connection between them. Jagard, as the printer of playbills, would have had regular contact with the King's Men's Theatre Company, based at the Globe, and he would thus have printed flyers for productions of plays by the company's principal playwright, William Shakespeare. Blunt, as a sometime publisher of plays, had actually invested in two texts by Shakespeare, having, in 1608, purchased the rights to Anthony and Cleopatra and Pericles, though he hadn't, by 1616, yet published any editions of those plays. So if Blunt and Jagard had chatted with each other over an after-dinner glass of port, perhaps, their conversation might well have turned to Shakespeare, not least because the playwright had actually died just a few months before the Stationers' Hall dinner took place. As members of the publishing trade, they might have noted the fact that only half of Shakespeare's plays had ever appeared in print. Jaggard, in particular, would certainly have been conscious of this, as he would have known uh, of many of the plays which, though he has printed playbills for them, had never subsequently appeared in print. Might the, the two men then have speculated that December night in London about the prospect of bringing all of Shakespeare's plays, published and unpublished, into a single collected volume? Now, we simply don't know the answer to that question, of course, but what we do know is that seven years later, in 1623, just such a volume did appear with both the Jagard and Blunt names included on the title page. You can see them here and here. Uh, by this point, William Jagard was terminally ill. So it's his son Isaac's name that appears at the bottom of the title page here. Now, in the interim between the 1616 dinner and the appearance of the 1623 volume, the Jagard firm had actually collaborated with a different publisher on a different Shakespearean project. <coughs> that publisher was Thomas Pavier, and in 1619, 
he issued a selected edition of the of plays, uh, either written by Shakespeare or mistakenly thought to have been written by him. These plays could be published individually, but we have, a, we have strong evidence that they were more commonly bought, bound together as a complete set. This 1619 collection seems to have had two effects. First of all, it likely demonstrated that there was a demand for some version of Shakespeare in collected form, given that people were keen to buy this particular group of texts as a set. Secondly, it appears to have prompted the King's Men Theatre Company to take a closer interest in what was happening to their plays in the print marketplace. Thus, in May of 1619, just shortly after these plays appeared, at the prompting of the King's Men, the Lord Chamberlain wrote to the Stationers' Company indicating that no plays that His Majesty's players do play shall be printed without consent of some of them, effectively placing a staying order on any further projects such as Pavier's. In the wake of securing this embargo, the King's Men seem to have entered into collaboration with Blunt as publisher and the Jaggards as printers in facilitating the production of what would become the 1623 volume. They did this by releasing to Blunt and Jagod a copy of those plays which had not yet been brought to print. Furthermore, two leading members of the theatre company and close friends of Shakespeare, John Hemming and Henry Condell, actually signed their names both to the volume's dedication and also uh, so here's the dedication, you can see their names uh, at the bottom there, and also to an introductory address to the great variety of readers. A striking feature of the introductory address is the extent to which potential readers of the volume are exhorted to publish it. So if we just zoom in on the opening couple of sentences there. For the most able, to him that can but spell, there you are numbered. We had rather you were weighed, especially when the fate of all books depends upon your capacities and not of your heads alone, but of your purses. Well, it is now public and you will stand for your privileges, we know, to read and censure. Do so, but buy it first. <laughs> Later in the same paragraph, the reader is again exhorted uh, whatever you do, buy. The likelihood is that Henny and Kandel were urged to these hard sell tactics by Blunt, who as principal publisher would have borne the bulk of the considerable cost of producing the text. The volume was a substantial book issued in folio format. This was the largest standard book size uh, of the times, so the one in your far left there. Uh, and it gives us the common name for the folio. We call it the first folio because of the folio size, but there would be three more folio volumes over the course of the 17th century, so it is the first of that set of four. Well, I'm happy to say we have all four in the Trinity collection. Traditionally, the folio format 
had been reserved for prestige publications. And in a way, the First Folio uh, Project is precisely about prestige, an attempt uh, to accord Heming and Condell's colleague a textual monument equal to his literary achievement. But the book also needed to be in folio format simply because Shakespeare had written so many plays. So we can see that despite the volumes running to around 900 pages in length, the plays needed to be printed in double columns as well in order to maximize the number of words that could be gotten onto each page. A book of this size required a lot of paper and that paper had to be paid for upfront by the publisher at an estimated cost of about a uh, hundred pounds, which is a colossal amount of money, or a significant amount of money, certainly, uh, at that time. Blunt, as the primary publisher, would have had to absorb that cost in advance, and so he would have been anxious to recuperate as much of it as he could, as soon as he possibly could, hence the appeal to casual browsers in the bookshop to become actual, uh, actual purchasers. When the volume was published, it likely cost about one pound per copy in a simple binding. Uh, now, economists will say quite rightly that it's pretty much impossible to translate that figure into a contemporary equivalent with any degree of accuracy. But if we look at how much time it would have taken an unskilled worker in London to earn a pound, and we translate that into the equivalent for somebody on the minimum wage today, it would give us a rough and ready ballpark figure of just short of a thousand euros. So broadly speaking, the equivalent cost uh, of a high-end mobile phone. <laughs> 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 it's perfectly timed to whoever that is. Thank you very much. <laughs> I swear I didn't plan that. <laughs> the first folio was then a luxury item. And it's not surprising uh, that most of the purchase records that survive from this period relate to aristocratic uh, or wealthy buyers. Given the cost of the volume, Blunt would have had to calculate very carefully what kind of print run to ask the Jaguars to set up. So how many copies should they print for him? If he ordered too many copies, he would potentially have had expensive unsold stock on his hands for many years to come. As best we can tell, he seems to have settled on a print run of around about 750 copies in total. This appears to have been a shrewd calculation since a second Shakespeare folio appeared in uh, 1632, we'll the date there at the bottom, a sign that the first edition had likely sold out within no more than nine years of the appearance of the, uh, uh, sorry, of its appearance in 1623, which was pretty good for a book of this kind at the time to sell out within uh, less than nine years, you were doing pretty well. 
So of the original 750 copies, a little over 230 copies have survived. So just under a third of the original likely print run. So in this sense, the first folio cannot be said to be a rare book as such. We might contrast it, for instance, with the first edition of Titus Andronicus, Shakespeare's first published play, only a single copy of which uh, survives. And in fact, it was thought that we had lost this edition completely uh, until a copy turned up in 1904 in Sweden. Uh, and it was purchased by the American collectors Henry and uh, Emily Folger. Now the Folgers, as a couple, dedicated themselves to assembling the most comprehensive uh, collection sorry, here they are, uh, of Shakespeare-related material anywhere in the world. And that collection is now housed in a library named after them, uh, Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C. Now, I now invite you to guess how many copies of the first folio are in the Folger collection of Washington? Now, I know some people know the answer to this question. So if you know the answer, you're not allowed to answer. But those of you who don't know the answer, how many copies do you think are in the Folger of the first folio? We have one. One fifty. One hundred and fifty. One hundred and fifty. So the whole point of this segment <laughs> is that you start by saying five, ten, <laughs> and I keep telling you you're wrong. <laughs> so one fifty is still wrong, uh, but the answer is a bit over eighty. Uh, I say a bit over eighty because they don't know exactly how many copies they have gathered. So here is the wall of folios in the vault of the Shakespeare uh, Library. So around about 80 copies, um, more copies, far and away more copies than, than anywhere else uh, in the world. So if we step back from this extraordinary modern American collection, we can say that we have evidence of a number of copies of the volume that crossed the sea over here to Ireland. So for an example, we have a portrait here of the famous Irish actor and theater manager, Thomas Sheridan. I'm sure some of you have seen this image before. Sheridan was very closely associated with Smock Alley Theater. I'm sure many of you know about Smock Alley, a version of it still exists. Uh, so he was, uh, uh, he acted there in Shakespeare productions and he was manager there as well. So you can see he's leaning on a folio sized volume there, uh, casually leaning. And if we zoom in on it, we can see that it says Shakespeare's plays on the spine. Uh, now we don't know for certain that this is a first folio, it could be a later folio, of course. Uh, but there's a chance, there's a chance at least, uh, that it may have been a copy of the first folio. Uh, one person we do know who definitely owned a copy of the folio is James Caulfield, who seems to have been unaware of the rule that I before E except after C. This really is how he spelled his name. Uh, the first Earl of Charlemont. So, Char so Caulfield inherited extensive colonial estates 
in County Tyrone, so the old O'Neill Estates, a part of the old O'Neill Estates in Tyrone, and he built a grand home for himself in Marino, uh, but only, of course only the beautiful casino building that he commissioned for the grounds of the Marino Estate uh, still uh, survives today, and you can go and visit it. That's a plug specially uh, for guests from the casino who are here tonight. Now, and not content with his house in Marino, Caulfield also built a house in the centre of Dublin, and that does still survive, and here it is, it's called Charlemont House. So, anybody recognise the house? It's the healing era, exactly. Uh, so this was his, this was his London, sorry, his, his Dublin residence. So Caulfield established an extensive library at Charlemont House with a particular strength in early Shakespeare editions. So we know, for example, that he owned a number of single play first editions and that he also had a complete set of those 1619 Pavier texts that I was mentioning earlier and he had uh, copies of the so-called Shakespeare Apocryphus. You see them there, Lochran, the Puritan Widow, along the Prodigal, and from the Paviers, one Sir John Oldcastle and a Yorkshire Tragedy. Some of these texts have been acquired for Caulfield by the noted Irish Shakespearean Edmund Malone, a graduate of Trinity, who effectively served as his London agent. And at one point, the Earl offered Malone the slightly questionable, perhaps, compliment that he was certainly the best book jockey that ever existed. <laughs> Sometime around 1786, Malone secured a copy of the first folio for Caulfield. He acquired the volume for an exceptionally good price, paying just six guineas for it. But just four years after that, the Duke of Roxburgh would pay six times that amount uh, for what Malone considered an indifferent copy of the volume. The Caulfield folio was kept at Charlemont House until 1865, when the family decided to dispose of the library, selling it at auction at Sotheby's in London. So here's the title of the catalogue, and you can see that one of the things that's flagged in it is the copy of the first folio and the quartos. A fire at Sotheby's warehouse led to parts of the library being lost or damaged, damaged, but the Shakespeare items had luckily been sent on temporary loan to the scholar and collector James Orchard Halliwell Phillips, and so they remained unaffected by the fire. Uh, the Caulfield folio is now in private hands. It's one of the few copies still in private hands, uh, but it's been, it has been on extended loan to the National Library of Scotland in Edinburgh uh, for the past stretch of years. Another 18th century Irish-held copy of the first folio that we have a little information on is one owned by Dennis Daly, uh, who served as MP for County Galway in the Irish Parliament from 1768 until 1790. Daly was known both to Caulfield and to Edmund Malone, and in fact, when he died in 1791, Malone described him to Caulfield as having been one of the oldest friends I had in the world. 
Following his death, Daly's extensive library was sold at auction in Dublin. The sale was conducted on behalf of the book dealers, John Archer and William Jones. Uh, I think Jones had uh, business premises on Grafton Street and Archer was on Dame Street. Uh, they had bought the library outright from Daly's family with the intention of breaking up the collection for sale uh, at a profit. The auction pr uh, prompted considerable excitement. So at the time, Caulfield wrote to Malone, observing that the books have, I believe, sold for almost double what the family got for them. During the week of the auction, the Dublin world was book mad. All men bought, they who could and they who could not read. <laughs> and the prices were more than London would have afforded. Among the lots for sale, as we can see from the catalogue, was what was described as a very fine copy of the first folio. Now, unfortunately, we have no record of where this volume ended up, so whether it stayed in the country for a spell uh, or, or whether it was bought from, by somebody from outside the country. But there is, however, one further copy of the first folio that was sold at auction in Dublin at around about this time, and we do know that that copy, for certain, is in the country. And we know this because it's lodged snugly in a safe in a building just meters away from where we are tonight, across in the old library. This is, of course, Trinity's own copy of the volume. And this is now, as far as we know, the only copy remaining on the island of Ireland. So College acquired this copy in 1805 at the sale of the library of the recently deceased Arthur Brown. So here again is the catalogue entry. And we know from college records that we paid £26, 11 shillings and sixpence, for the benefit of anybody who still remembers pre-decimal <laughs> currency. Uh, so we paid that for the volume. And I do sometimes wonder whether this might not actually have been the best investment that Trinity College Dublin has ever made. Now, I'll say a little bit about the volume itself in just a moment, but first I'd like to fill in a little uh, of Arthur Brown's backstory, as it's interesting in itself. So here is Brown in a portrait included in the College Art Collection. He was actually born in Newport, Rhode Island, but his family had strong Irish connections. So his grandfather, was from County Louth and was a graduate of Trinity. After graduating, his grandfather served for a spell as secretary to Jonathan Swift, but then he emigrated to New England at the urging of George Barclay, and he served as a church minister in New England. Arthur Brown's father, Marmaduke Brown, was also ed educated here at Trinity and he too served as a minister in New England, primarily at Trinity Church in Newport, Rhode Island. The church still exists today. Uh, and in fact, there's a monument to Marmaduke Brown uh, on the wall of the church. Here he is, 
uh, a monument uh, plaque paid for uh, by his son, Arthur Brown, Arthur Brown of the Trinity copy. Uh, Arthur Brown himself had been due to attend Harvard as a student, but in 1772, at the age of 16, he changed his mind and he crossed the Atlantic to return to the land of his ancestors. Sorry, that, <laughs> that's the wrong American. <laughs> this is Arthur Brown. So Arthur Brown uh, enrolled here at Trinity, and he had a brilliant career as a student, gaining scholarship in 1774, graduating his BA in 76, and becoming a junior fellow in 1777. His childhood in North America left a significant impression on him. And later in life, he, he wrote that he would, now and then, cast back a look to it, as if to a distant paradise, and vainly imagine, amidst cares and anxieties where he is, that they do not dwell in every country, and they are not the inhabitants of every soil. Despite his nostalgia for New England, Brown remained in Ireland and he made a successful career for himself here as a lawyer and an academic. So he became a senior fellow here at Trinity, uh, he lectured in law, and he served for good measure, he served three terms as Regius Professor of Greek. He was also a notable politician. So in these days, in those days, uh, Trinity had its own seat in the Irish Parliament, and in 1783 he was elected MP for Trinity in the Parliament uh, across the Green, uh, the Bank of Ireland building is, as it is now. And he served in that role until the Irish legislature was dissolved following the passage of the Act of Union in 1800. But Brown was actually connected to the other Irish folio owners uh, whom I've already mentioned. So all three men were, of course, politicians in the Irish Parliament. Caulfield in the House of Lords, uh, Brown and Daly in the Lower House. All three also belonged to an organisation called the Monks of the Order of St. Patrick, otherwise known colloquially as the Monks of the Screw. Now, I should say the screw in question is a corkscrew, so the name <laughs> refers to their drinking habits <laughs> rather than to anything else. The organisation was founded in 1779 as, to quote the historian James Kelly, a political and convivial club dedicated to advancing the Irish patriotic cause. Patriotic here, of course, having its very specific uh, later 18th century Irish meaning, equating, I suppose, very roughly to settler nationalism. Brown and Caulfield were also, in a later period, both members of the Dublin Quig Club, which met regularly for dinner and discussion, typically either at the home of the Duke of Leinster, which is to say Leinster House, or at Caulfield's own uh, Charlemont House. We know that on at least one occasion, perhaps on the evening of one of those dinners, Caulfield allowed Brown to see the Charlemont copy of the first folio. 
We know this because Brown wrote the following note in his own copy of the folios. If you look at our copy here in Trinity, you'll see this note in Brown's own handwriting with his signature here at the bottom. So the note reads, the first folio edition of Shakespeare is known by these marks. In Measure for Measure, page 71, you will find the Prenzi Angelo, which in all other editions is written princely, so the princely Angelo. And in the catalogue of plays, Troilus and Cressida is omitted, though the play is found in the body of the work. And then underneath this, copied by me from a notation in Lord Charlemont's handwriting on a loose paper, which I found between the leaves of his first edition. So, <clears throat> what we begin to see emerging here is, we might say, a kind of establishment settler community rooting itself in the cultural capital of the Shakespeare text. Something that, in fact, we also find in the Dublin theatre scene at the time. Now, coming on more specifically to Brown's own copy of the folio, the book, as it has come down to us, is generally in good condition, but the title page is in essence a work of salvage, the remnants of the original having been pasted on to a new sheet. Repair work is evident in several places in the volume. So here, for instance, it looks as if a candle has accidentally been dropped into the gutter of the book and has burned down through several leaves, all of which have been repaired. But if we look a little more closely at the repair work, we'll notice that the missing text has been replicated in a handwritten facsimile of the original print. So somebody has very, very carefully repaired the book and handwritten in the missing text in a way that, that attempts to replicate the print. Such manuscript facsimile work is evident elsewhere in the volume as well. So here I think you can probably see the, the ragged edge of the repair, and you can see the replacement text uh, that's been very carefully copied in there. Just one more example. So here we can see a, a recovered page, and you can see it's been pasted onto a sheet. The running title has been replicated in manuscript, and we've got a little bits and pieces down along the edge of it there. Beyond the repair work visible in the volume, Anthony West and Eric Rasmussen has observed that we also see in the Trinity copy, uh, quote, signs of the day-to-day -day life that can sometimes be found in a folio. And one of my own particular favorite examples is this mark, which we find in the so-called wooing scene in Henry the Henry the Fifth, so it seems pretty clearly, I think, to be a paw print, right? I'm going to take a quick straw poll. I'm going to ask you whether you think it's a cat's paw or a dog's paw. How many people think it's a cat's paw? How many people think it's a dog's paw? 
I'm very disappointed. <laughs> As a cat lover, I was hoping there was going to be a majority of people thinking it's a cat. I think it's a large cat. <laughs> prepared. I'm prepared to be persuaded. Um, so, candle burns, paw prints, drink stains. I'm oh, sorry, I jumped ahead of myself there, excuse me. I will backtrack. <laughs> uh, so in addition to the paw print, we also have evidence in several places of what looks like drink having been spilt on pages of the book. <laughs> so candle burns, paw prints, drink stains are all, of course, the accidental products of the book's domestic life. But what about signs of the actual reading of an intervention in the text? Again, we can point to evidence of this in the volume. So at the head of a number of plays, we sometimes find initials inked in at the very beginning of the text. And the initials are RB. Generally, they're included on both sides of the page, though in many cases, as here, the right-hand initials have been partly lost uh, as a result of the text block having been trimmed at some point, possibly when the book was, was rebound at some point. It's possible that the initials were added to indicate to the reader herself or himself which plays have been read, so you're keeping track of what you've read in the book as you go through. We can't say exactly who these initials belong to. The B might suggest that the surname might have been Brown <coughs> and that the marks might have been made by a member of Arthur Brown's family. However, we have no record of an immediate family uh, a member with a first name beginning with R. Brown was married twice, but his wives' names were Marianne and Bridget. <coughs> Though I think Bridget is a very interesting name uh, for his second wife in the context of the politics of the time. Of his children, we know of an Arthur, a Mary, and an Anne Marie. But there are three other children we, bless you, we know of whose names have not survived. So perhaps one of them might be, might have been the or be of the first folio. So I'd like to think myself it might have been a Rosalind or a Rebecca, perhaps. Beyond the initial text, some passages in the plays have been marked out, though it isn't always possible to see for what purpose exactly. Most of the passages that have been highlighted appear decidedly pedestrian, <coughs> as in the case of this piece of boxed text about the hiring out of horses uh, from the Merry Wives of Windsor. <coughs> in other places, sections of text have been crossed out, again, without there being a very strong sense of what is being objected to or why. So here, for instance, again in the Merry Wives, we have a passage very decisively crossed through but without any particular sense of why the reader wished to excise it. Uh, it's the exchange between Fenton and the host of the garter in Mary Wives, if you know Mary Wives. It's a kind of inconsequential speech, really. Proposing emendations to the text of Shakespeare was something of an obsession of the 18th century. 
a continuation, we might say, by the general public of the footnote trench warfare of the great succession of editors from Alexander Pope to uh, Edmund Malone. So in the Trinity volume, we have just one example of a reader making a change specifically to the wording of the text. And it's a rather strange one. So we find it in A Winter's Tale. And we can see the change there. So the original text, which is a comment addressed to the shepherd by the clown, reads, See, see, what a man you are now. There's no other way but to tell the king she's a changeling and none of your flesh and blood. And so somebody has changed this to, See, see, what an old fool you are, father. There's no other way but to tell the king she's none of your flesh and blood. So the addition of the word father is interesting here in that The Winter's Tale is, of course, a play very much about fathers and fathering. In fact, the word appears 40 times in the text. And here we find a reader adding a somewhat gratuitous, we might feel, 41st instance of the word. More intriguing, perhaps, is the excision of the word changeling. So what is the motivation here? Why is it being struck out in the text? Is it in some way connected to a sense that notions of changelings and fairies are, in an Irish context, particularly associated with a Catholic tradition infused with native folk belief? Uh, again, it's very hard to say uh, what the motivation is. So we see then <coughs> that many of the interventions on the pages of the Trinity Folio resist any kind of easy explanation. But the obscurity of these manuscript intrusions pales into insignificance when compared with the longest and most puzzling handwritten intervention in the volume. And we find this on the blank verso facing the opening page of King John. And here it is in closer detail. So it's quite hard to say what it is we're looking at here. One person I asked about the markings suggested to me that this could be Persian or Farsi. So you remember I mentioned earlier that Brown was professor of Greek at Trinity as well as being professor of law. But a bit of digging revealed to me that his knowledge of languages was actually quite extensive. And among the languages he had a working knowledge of was Persian. In fact, he knew enough Farsi to have published a text in 1801 entitled Beauty at Heart, an allegory translated from Persian. So I found myself somebody who knows Farsi and I sent them a photograph of these mysterious <coughs> symbols, and they wrote back to me to say that it's not Persian. <laughs> but a little more digging revealed that Brown not only translated poems from Farsi, he also published an actual essay specifically on the topic of Persian grammar. And here it is. So maybe the person I'd contacted was just mistaken, I thought. So off I went and I found myself another person who knows Farsi and I sent him the photograph 
And he wrote back to me, and he said, not only is it not Farsi, <laughs> it's not any known alphabet of any language from anywhere in the remote vicinity of Persia. <laughs> so Farsi turned out uh, ultimately to be a red herring. Since then, my esteemed colleague and annotator extraordinaire, Sam Slope, has suggested to me that perhaps the symbols might be some form of shorthand. I uh, think, actually, that Sam is very likely to be right about this. It does seem to be a degree of similarity between, for instance, some of the symbols in the folio inscription and some of those included in Thomas Shelton's <coughs> excuse me, tachygraphic system of shorthand dating from the early 17th century. So we know that both Samuel Pepys, the famous diarist, and Isaac Newton <coughs> made use of Shelton's system, so it was reasonably widespread in the period. Uh, and in fact, somebody pointed out to me just a couple of weeks ago that in fact, of course, as a lawyer, it would probably have made sense for Brown to have taken the trouble to learn shorthand. Well, that being said, I'm afraid my own hapless attempts to learn enough typography to decipher the passage in the folio have not produced results of any great substance beyond my vaguely registering similarities between the symbols and elements of the inscription. So the passage awaits the attention of somebody a bit more patient and more skillful than myself. <coughs> Possibly in the fullness of time we may discover that what we have hidden away at the heart of the Trinity Folio is some deep, dark, intriguing Da Vinci, da Vinci Code style <laughs> secret. But as we look to decipher the inscription, we might be as well to remember that Pepys's decoded diary in addition to all the interesting sexy bits that were in it, also included passages such as the following. All the morning in the cellar with the colliers, removing the coals out of the old coal hole and into the new one. And now the cellar is done and made clean, it doth please me exceedingly, as much as anything that was ever yet done in my house. So perhaps we shouldn't get overly excited <laughs> about what the folio passage may reveal to us. Maybe at the end of the day, it's just something mundane, like a laundry list. To conclude then, we began by noting that a little over 200, uh, 230 copies of the first folio have survived through the four centuries since it was published. These range from partly incomplete copies of the volume to fully intact, pristine copies, such as this one, uh, which sold at auction just a couple of years ago uh, for a significant sum. Trinity's copy, Ireland's copy, since we are merely its custodians here in college, is, as we've seen, not in pristine condition. It has been poured over and poured over and pawed over and scribbled on, set fire to, and generally knocked about. 
And all of those things have quite literally left their marks on the book. But for me, I would take our folio any day over any clean, sterile copy of the book. Because ours, after all, is a living book, a household object through which we can feel the presence of the ghosts of its previous readers as we turn the pages. Readers who made good use of the book and who cherished it. And we are lucky in our turn to have it to cherish in our own time. So here's looking forward to its next four centuries. Thank mm -hmm. you.